For this episode only, we apologize up front for the audio aggravation. There was an unexplained electrical interference within the storefront at the mall in which our studio is located. Hi, this is Jeff Davis. I spent many years just down the road playing rock and roll along the lakefront in Chicago at WLS Music Radio. This year's a banner year for Radio Centennials. That's why I'm happy to wish my brothers and sisters in radio a heartfelt 100th anniversary at 1440 WROK in Rockford, Illinois. Sometimes people just need a really good reason to get back together and enjoy each other. This is one of those occasions. Getting behind the microphone again and sharing those seldom told tales is a special feeling these folks didn't want to pass up. The studio is filled with decades of photos, bumper stickers, buttons, albums, t-shirts, jackets, original signs, and well-deserved industry awards. Here's to WROK's 100 years of broadcasting in Northern Illinois and Southern Wisconsin. And now, more radio stories between old friends on another episode of the Storyteller Studio. Doug McDuff of the WROK Storyteller Studio with Rockford Radio Icon and good friend of mine for many years, Fred Spear. Fred, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good to be here. Nice to see you on this cool day in April. And uh, before I get into reason I mentioned April, let's start at the beginning. The schooling, the education, the impetus to get into this crazy business, what, ha- what, what, did, what motivated Fred Spear? Well, I'll tell you what, when I was going to West High School, uh, I was quiet, a withdrawn kid, and uh, I took a communications ca- uh, class with, and the teacher was Charles Espy, and he kind of brought me out of this shell shell yeah you know and and uh, uh, we were chatting one day and uh, he said Fred do you have any idea what you want to do after you leave West High I said I don't have a clue you know and he said you should consider broadcasting I said what and it stuck with me and so when I graduated from West High I went to Columbia College in Chicago and majored in broadcasting. Wow. And uh, I had a great announcing instructor, Al Parker, who used to come out and do some commercials out here on uh, Channel 13. But anyways, I, I, I told him at school when I started, I said, you know, I said, if you hear, I went to school from 9 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon, and I said, if you hear of any part-time jobs, let me know. I, I said, I really want to help mom and dad. Which pretty much everybody had that question at the beginning of radio. If I can That's do right. anything, anything, please let me know. Anything. So the office called me one day and they said, they're taking interviews this afternoon at NBC Radio and Television and the Merchandise Mart on the 19th and 20th floors at 4 o'clock. So I thought, I'll be there. So I got there. Oh, there was a bunch of people there. And uh, Bob Hammerstrom turned out to be my boss. He told me that day, he says, can you stick around? I said, I can. Long story short, I got the job. And it was, it was a gopher job. I, I, I was in guest relations. I took people on tours. Uh, I looked up uh, lost copy for announcers. And the NBC announcers at that time, 
at NBC. I mean, they were seasoned, older gentlemen. And at that particular time, in order for an announcer to take out an NBC application, he had to speak two other languages besides English. Wow. And uh, it was a great atmosphere to be around all these total professional people. Uh, the NBC orchestra that played nightly on television there, their staff singer at that time was Michael Douglas. <gasps> the Michael Douglas? The Michael Douglas. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, who was on uh, the Chicago NBC news staff at that time? John Chancellor. No way. Yes. Did I, you work in the newsroom with him? No, I, I floated all over the place. So you would be sort of like an NBC page sort page, of? Page, yes. Okay. And so right. I was in the, in the newsroom one day, and he had picked up on the fact that I was interested in news. Mm -hmm. And he said, how serious are you about getting into the news business? I said, that's, that's what I really want to do. And he said, you see that clock on the wall? And I said, yes. And he said, if you are serious about the news business, that clock never exists because you cover it whenever and wherever it happens, period. Oh, wow. And I never lost track of that concept. Well, yeah. But it's right. It's true. You it's know? True. You can't dictate when it happens. No. No. He no. gave you some great advice. Wow. Which reminds me of something. I was going to ask you when we first started this interview, what time do you get up in the morning now compared to the time when you and I worked together at ROK 100 years ago? I get up about 6. And what time did you get up when we worked together? Okay. When we worked together, I split my sleep. I slept three hours in the afternoon, three hours at night, and always started my day at 2 in the morning. And then at 2 in the morning, you went and covered went, the went police beat? Yeah, went downtown, uh, uh, covered the police beat, the uh, public safety building, uh, the fire department, and uh, picked up the news that uh, I put together for the early morning newscast. You also made a trip to the fire stations and were well-fed, yes. I was told. Oh. I don't well, know how you ever maintain the weight you I have got, to this day. I, I, you mentioned the fire station. Some of these firefighters, at least back then, yeah. great cooks. Tony Giardini, you probably I, remember Tony. Sure, Tony. Yes, I was in the station, too, where the rescue squad was at that time one day, and Tony was on that. And uh, he said, hey, Freddie, he said, uh, uh, can you do lunch with us today? He said, I'm cooking spaghetti dinner. And I'd been up a couple of days, and I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, I'll be glad to. So noontime, I was there, and. I'm chowing down spaghetti, and all of a sudden, I fell asleep, and my face went right in my platter of spaghetti, <laughs> and those guys will never, ever forget that. You know, and I come up like this, and, and spaghetti and sauce dripping off my face, and, but those were great days. Uh, they were for all of us, and uh, they are, I'm sorry to say, kind of gone. Let, let's move on. Get, you, you got great advice from John Chancellor, and then 
How did you get the job at WROK with the Nolte's? Uh, after I left Columbia College, I went to work uh, at a radio station in Muskegon, Michigan. And they didn't have an opening in the news department, but I also had a music background. And so they said, we'd like to start you out spinning records from 7 at night till midnight. I said, great. And I'll tell you what, that was a great experience. I mean, that's when Pat Boone and Elvis and all those were great. It was just a great experience. And uh, I was very fortunate to develop a very loyal listenership. I had a woman by the name of Nellie Lattimore that used to cook pies and bring them in for Oh, me. my God. <laughs> Everybody, every radio station has that person. That's right. That just brings them in, and it, it doesn't matter what they put in the oven. It tastes great. It, it, I know. It's it's wonderful. I don't know. If, do we, Is there such a thing as a broadcasting magazine that comes out anymore? I don't, I don't think so. You know, we've got a copy of Radio, radio and Records. Radio and Records is still around, but yeah. I don't yeah. think broadcasting. We all subscribe to broadcasting in the old days. But there was one that I think not necessarily substituted Radio and Records, but, but was part of the national distribution called Radio World. And it would have ads and stuff like that, but not near as extensive as Radio and Records was. Oh. I think it's all online now. Yeah. Well, Nothing Broadcasting Magazine was how a lot of us got, got jobs. jobs. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and Radio advertised and in there. Yeah. We'll send resume. We'll, we'll do anything to get a job with yeah. you. Well, and, and we also found out where our friends moved that are halfway across the country. Exactly. Right. And if somebody we knew got fired. I should yeah. point out yeah, that we we're know. here oh. in the uh, WROK Storyteller Studio. And I, d- I don't think I mentioned that Tim Larson and Liz Wilder are in with us here. <laughs> and, and we appreciate that. And it's always good to have Absolutely. Uh, four heads are better than two, I guess, huh, Fred? One day when I was still working in Michigan, and ROK had an ad in there. Oh, my. And I thought, whoa. And what year was that? Oh, that would be back in... 60s? 58, maybe. Oh, really? 60s. I cut a tape and said it. And lo and behold... I got a call. I said, we'd like to talk to you. And so I went in and did an interview. With who? I think it was with... Um, this well, is before Jerry Collins? Oh, this was... Way back. This is when... When they were in the this, news tower? This is when uh, ROK was owned by Rockford Newspapers, right. the Todd family. Right. Oh. And uh, the studios were very plush studios on the second floor of the news tower. Wow. And... Um, um, Rick Edwards was one of the staff people. I think Maury Owens is the one who interviewed me. But anyway, sportscaster and newsman. Lo and behold, I got hired, and I worked for the Todd family in the news tower for two years, I believe, about two years, and they decided to sell the radio station, sell their interest in REX TV, and concentrate on publishing. And that's when it went to the Nolte family, ah. and we moved out to the Brendan Wood Road site. Wow. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this a rumor or is this true? I have been told that Bill Todd insisted to Vern Nolte that about four or five people came with the deal. We, you've got to have Fred Spear. You've got to have Maury Owens, engineer Maury Nelson, 
Hap Esmond, a salesperson, and Johnny Brown. Is that true, that they were part of the deal? That's part of the deal. Okay. I, I've That's, wanted to get that. I've never asked you that off the air no. or on the air or anything, but I was always wondering if that was really true, showing the value of those people to Bill Todd and Vern Nolte, bless him, honored that and kept all five. Maybe there was one more that I forgot in that right, list. But. Right. But, you know, before Vern actually took over the radio station, he spent some time in uh, Rock River Towers listening to all the air, yeah. all the air people on ROK. So he knew when he came in to officially take over the station who he wanted to keep and who he wanted to go, wow. you know? And we were walking from the parking lot into the radio station one day, and I had not formally met him. He walked up and he said, I know who you are, Fred. And he said, I want you to stay with me. I neglected to mention Dave Salisbury in that group. That's right. Dave oh. was the... Oh, yeah. He, he was part of the deal. Do you remember the story about Dave when he came into the radio station? I was told this by Dave, so yeah. I know it's true. He said, <laughs> among many... Th- I'm not going to tell some of the other stories, this, but this is the one where he did not know what a spot was. Now, remember, he sold print. He was a newspaper salesman. That's right. But he had to be taught... But he also, Vern Nolte, was smart enough to hire people that would work with him and for him and help him succeed. Yes. So that's why he picked exactly. people. Exactly. Like, and Dave learned what a spot was and what selling radio was versus uh, newspaper, etc., and became quite proficient at it and stayed there for many, many, many years. Years. And uh, yeah. he was part of that package. Moving along here uh, from the move to Brendanwood. I don't think I've ever asked you this question off the air or on the air. Have you ever thought of being a news director over your career? One day, Vern called me into his office. The news director had moved on. He says, Fred, he said, I think it's time for you to step into that position. I said, Mr. Nolte, I I don't know if I want to give up the spot news coverage, you know. And he said, I think you should try. I'll make you a deal. I said, wait a minute, you're the only person that said to Vern Nolte, I'll I'll make make you a deal. deal. I said, (laughs) I will try, and I will give it my best shot. But didn't that turn you into sort of an eight-to-fiver? Oh, it's terrible. The worst worst period of my 44 years career. And finally, one day, I walked into Mr. Nolte, and I said, sir, believe me, I have given it my best try it's not for me i belong back out on the street doing newscast and whatever and he said you got it and that was it Wow. never to be revisited that topic again over ne- your 40 never, years never never wow it also yeah. showed i think bill, your value to the company well i think bill taylor came in as news director at but that it time. Ma- and many managers uh, owners yeah you'd have been let go yeah Oh, yeah. You turned me down. I gave you this opportunity. You're gone. That's it. But Vern saw the value in you as a street reporter. Now, it, it happens to be, I mentioned at the outset of the program, that this is April when we're doing this broadcast. It makes me think of the tornado, which had a big effect on your life and my life in 1967 in Belvedere. I think it was the 21st of April. 1st of April. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and uh, I always thanked you for inviting me the next morning because we all lived through that oh. terrible disaster. 
and you called me and said, you want to go to Belvedere tomorrow morning, Saturday. Yeah. Do you remember the kind of weather it was on the day of the tornado and how it was the next day? Oh, the next day, it snowed. Exactly. Yeah, the next day it snowed, the day that the tornado hit. I was on the southeast side of Rockford because it just scraped a few roofs and homes on the southeast side before it touched down and really blasted Belvedere. And uh, I, uh, they radioed me in the news vehicle. They said, you better head to Belvedere. Sounds like they really got hit. And I pulled up over there, and uh, a state trooper uh, who I knew, he said, Fred, this is about as far as you're going to get. You're going to have to hoof it the rest of the way. At that time, I was a a first aid instructor for the Red Cross here. And the Nolte family provided me with a huge metal box first aid kit that I carried all the time in the news vehicle. How far away were you when you had to hoof it? Oh, quite a ways. I, I, I said, I want to get to two places. I want to get up to the hospital, and I want to get to the school. Okay. You know? And the, and the trooper told me, he said, you better take your first aid kit because you're going to need it. Okay. By the time I got up to the hospital, the first aid kit was empty. Oh, man. I'm outside the hospital, and this woman walks up to me holding what turned out to be in her hands and arms, her only remaining possessions. Her house was gone. And she said, what you see here is it. And she said, what's in that metal box there? I says, it's nothing, ma'am. It's empty. I said, here, put your belongings in this metal box and just take it. And she said, well, I'll, I'll see that you get it. I said, no, don't worry about getting it back to me. I said, just, just take it. From there, long story short, I made it up to the school. And that was such a devastating scene. Overturns, it happened right when kids were getting out of school onto the school buses. Overturned school buses dead children in the muck outside and it was an experience I'll never forget and how precious life can be. Another long story short, years later I was speaking at a luncheon at the, uh, what is it, Shadley Apartments in Belvedere, and after the lunch, this woman walked up to me, and she said, you probably don't remember me. I said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, I, I really don't. And she says, I'm the one that you gave your empty first aid box to me no. years ago. And she said, I, sur- I survived, and I'm doing well. This was decades later? Yes. Holy cow. Yes. There was a a memory that I have of being with you in that vehicle the next day and going down the streets where the homes were and seeing nothing but toilets. That was the only thing visible from the street was the toilets. That was right. And 
I never forgot that. So I, I want to jump around a little mm-hmm. bit. W- within about a year of that, I also rode with you, and I had never had the pleasure except two times over the years mm-hmm. to go with you on, you remember where I'm going with this, 1968? South Main Street? Yes. <laughs> South Main Street in Rockford, and, and you said, Doug, I think for this one, you have better put a helmet on or whatever you some yeah, kind of right say, because we were it was the mid, middle of rioting in the country over the deaths of Martin Luther King and and other assassinations of uh, Kennedy and whatever not not John Kennedy but his brother Robert right all that year and you said it's going to be dangerous because I've been told there are snipers up on the roof even on South Main at that time so a lot of people don't remember Freddie that this time of 68 hit Rockford not as bad as other cities but it could have been hell that night oh, and it, it could have been yeah but it turned out no particular incident happened but there was fear in the air with everybody and tension oh you got you and I right. you and I felt it oh absolutely. Me, me more than you by the way yeah <laughs> you oh. were so used to covering all these kind of things so, so I, I saw a little history of Rockford in, in that period of 67 and 68 with you and I always thank you for let me be a part of that news life because Doug, were you both covering a story, or what were you covering? We were we were covering basically anything that went down at that particular time. South Main Street was very volatile at that time, and uh, uh, yeah. Fred was doing the news covering. I was just wetting my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Thought I'd clear that up. You were just the support yeah, team. I was just a support <laughs> winner. Uh, l- l- let's move on to other. As long as we're getting into history of, of news stories that you've covered, which is one of the big reasons why we're doing this interview, is that before we get to that, though, I've got to ask you: Who do you credit or discredit with the term "spread fear"? Have we ever traced that down? I'd like to say it was me that invented it, but I don't think it was. But, but I've used it. Well, I think fair it, on the scene. I think it was you. I think it was, but I can't yeah. prove it because I have that lousy yeah, memory I, for I, that I, kind I, of thing. But I, I, think, I, I think it was you. I, I, it was me, either me or Chuck Diamond. He had a tendency to label us all. Oh, that's a coin toss. It could have been either one it of you. It was one of us. I know that. Yeah. And she called me rug. I never understood why. Really? <laughs> anyway. Wow, you're not a quick learner, are you? <laughs> You know, you, know, I, on. you know, I went down to Toad Hall. Yeah. You know where Toad Hall oh, is I, on Broadway? I used to shop there. Yeah, and I picked up a couple of records and some 8-tracks, believe it yeah. or not. I got all my, my Mad Magazines are... there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I was I was telling them about the project that we're doing and why I'm buying these albums and what we're doing. And I said, you know, uh, Fred and Doug are coming in on Friday. And the gal in the back, now I'm talking to this individual guy, Nick, and the gal in the back goes, She's put records away. She goes, spread fear. <laughs> so after all these years, years. you know that the, the people still remind you. And, it's you know, when, when, when you walked in, um, you're not a social media guy. No. So I did no. a couple of freeze frames of uh, uh, like Rockford reminisce and growing up in Rockford. And they still show pictures of you and your news car and they say you remember Fred when he used to be on the scene no matter what happened. So your your existence in radio, even though you're not on the radio, still 
is floating around. You it guys really remember is. the Sara Lee commercial, Nobody Doesn't Like Sara Lee? Yes. Nobody doesn't like Fred Spear. That's it. I have found that out. There are maybe two or three people in the news business that didn't like Fred Spear. I know one or two. I'm not going to use their he, names now. Because he scooped them. Be, because <laughs> he scooped them, exactly. And I think, Freddie, well, without going into names, I think you know a couple of them that really were upset when Fred was given a little attention at the scene uh, by police and fire because he, I always felt Fred worked for the people, not he, the radio station. Well, and he, he worked for the fire department, the police department, first responders. He reported, he was loyal to Nolte and company and the radio station, but yes, he yeah. would not betray a confidence. Is That's that fair right. to say? That's fair to say. I, th- I think you always stepped into a police scene or a fire scene as they were one of your brothers. Yes, absolutely. And, and you always had that at the top of your head. And then, of course, you serve the people with the details. Right. But it's not like you were charging in to get the scoop. It's just because of that relationship, you happened to get the scoop. And they know that they could trust him. Absolutely. So if they said, I, I, let's use an example. Let's say, uh, Fred, we got some details on the story we're going to give you, but don't release it till 4 p.m. You wouldn't release it if Fern Nolte called you and said release it. No, that's right. That's just exactly. the way it was. And, and that's why you got trust from the radio station and from the public right. and, of course, from the officials involved in political and otherwise. You remember, I'm going to paint a picture here with, uh, like, Mayberry RFD, where the police squads used to have that one gigantic dome mm. on the top of the ho- or the top of the roof. Well, you remember we had in the old stand-up studio at WROK, we had a light about that size mounted from the ceiling. And one of my training sessions with whoever uh, said, when that light goes off, you know that Fred Spears on the scene somewhere. And I don't care if you're playing American Pie, which is eight minutes long, you dump out of that song very courteously and you go right into Fred Spear no matter where he is and let him go until he's done. But one time, Uh Fred Spear had a really big story and he wanted to get on the air and it was a weekend. Take it from there, Fred Spear. Oh, I'm trying to think. John London. Oh. <laughs> oh, I wish you could see his face right now. <laughs> it was G. John's face. Fred, John, Fred John. just shrunk in his Johnny seat. London. Just went, oh, John. No. It was a holiday weekend, right? He wouldn't put me on the air. That's the point. He, he would wouldn't? not. No. You mean he knew who you were and where you were, and, and he and just knew, and news was breaking. But no. And uh, we were a music station, then. he wouldn't. He wouldn't stop playing music for Fred. What was his excuse? He didn't want him on. Oh, my. <laughs> oh my. So let's take oh. it fast forward. You come into the station. I come into the station. I almost decked him. <laughs> I was so P.O.'d. I said, do you have any idea at this radio station what breaking news in Rockford means? <laughs> and... He was just kind of, uh, you know, and I, and I, oh, I came, I did, I came close to. Well, you did strike him. I may have. <laughs> I remember, and I remember the next day, you, you assumed you were going to be fired. That's right. That's Take it right. from there with Vern. Vern Nolte, my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> came to my defense totally and fired London. Oh, 
Now, in today's world, Fred would have been gone, and there'd have been a lawsuit. Yes. Yeah. Those days, this guy just humbly left the building and never was heard from ever again. Again. And there was never really a big story in the station. People, I don't think a lot of people that worked there knew the whole thing. I knew it because we worked so closely together, and obviously the management knew about it. Right, But right. you felt like you were going to be fired. Oh, I thought that was it. Yeah, yeah. That is the Fred Spear. Oh, my One of my God. favorite what, stories. Now, Isn't it funny yeah. where... Where oh. Doug, when he tells a story, uh, maybe half the facts, yeah. you know, surface, you know, because it's more of the emotional story. Fred knows all the details. But for this one story, did you see? Uh, I might yeah, have I might, hit him. Do you see how that flipped a little bit where I might He cold cocked him, let's face it. <laughs> It was it was fun to see that transition. I, because, I enjoyed it because Doug was yeah. very sure on his facts. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on. That that is ancient history, and but it is funny, and, and, and not to John, but to yeah. to, to, to us. Uh, let, let's talk about, on a serious note of some of the stories that that you covered, and we all remember, and I can't say fondly because they are tragedies in, in this in this town. Let's start with one of the ones that I remember from way back. And the Joey Didier case. Oh Joey Didier was missing. He was a paper boy. And take it from there. He turned up missing. What had happened was as he was leaving a residence, there was a car parked in front. And the driver motioned for Joey Didier to come over to the car. And Joey walked over to the car and he said, in so many words, yes, sir, can, can I help you? And the guy came up with a gun, and he says, you get your ass into this car right now. And he was missing for quite some time. And I was home one day, and the phone rang, and I had gotten to know the Didier family from covering the city council. That's when George Didier was on the city council alderman. And George said, um, can you come over to the house right now and spend some time with the family? And they lived up off Huffman Boulevard there. I said, sure, I'll be right over. And I got there and the family was seated around the dining room table. And I sat down and George said, You've been around this for a long time. He said, I want to know if our son is going to be found dead or alive. And I said to the family, I'm going to be honest with you. Knowing what I know from past experiences, I think your son is already dead. And as it turns out, he was found hanging in a Boy Scout cabin. Yeah, just. One of the tragedies of that case, of course, is not only the finding of the body but what the family had to go through afterwards oh. i i tried to help as best i could on the radio with sue diddy or his daughter 
you, you remember the petition? Yes. To keep him in jail? Yes. This, Absolutely. I, I don't want to say what I'm thinking, but mm-hmm. this well, terrible they, human being, let's put it that way. They did catch the human being then, obviously. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he's now deceased, I think. Yeah. He, oh, he's he's deceased. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah. Sue had to go through that petition drive, every, which proves something wrong with our laws. Why a person like that would ever be considered for a uh, parole, I'll never get that. But Sue and the family uh, did their part every year to get uh, the, to keep him in jail. And the community backed him up, too, because oh, obviously I, when absolutely. that came up oh, and the yeah. family went through that, oh, yeah. then that raised all the emotion for the community right. over and over. What was right. that, like every five years or something like that? All I know is that I had her on the air many times reminding people to sign the petition at various locations in Rockford. You know, when I first came to town, that was something was going on with that. I had no idea what this was all about because I'm not from here. I didn't know. And I was like, so what's the petition on about? I mean, I'll sign it if it helps, whatever. And it wasn't a couple years later that I actually had the chance to work with Sue on something, some floral design, something or other, and, and found out what it was all about yeah yeah but yeah now, now no here's idea. a here's a side note no. that is just sort of weird the way the details of things are sort of under the sod for many years now i've known my brother-in-law since we were 15 years old he's an eagle scout and of course you know we were all part of the scouts and everything else we've gone to canyon camp down in uh stockton where didier was found for years and years and years and my brother-in-law had come back from Phoenix, and I said, well, as long as you guys are here, you know, we're doing this NYLT camp down there. Why don't you come on down? I'll show you the camp, all the improvements, blah, blah, blah. Now, I've known him since he was 15. And so, what, 35 years later, we're walking through the camp, and he goes, that's where they found Didier, right there in cabin number two, the staff cabins. I go, you're kidding me. I says, how do you know that? He says, because our troop was here, camping in the winter and the sheriff's department came in to where we were staying which was on the other side of the uh the the actual canyon camp and it was like i don't know midnight one o'clock it says pack up all your stuff and go home well what's going on and they wouldn't tell them because they couldn't and so these kids and the leaders packed up everything in this winter camp and went home and three days later they found out that that's where they found didier so you see how weird stuff like that just sort of creeps sure. back in sure. that you never expect. Never. Because he didn't talk about it for 30-plus years until we went walking through that camp. Found him hanged, hanging from a rafter. Yeah. And Do I you sp- remember what year that was, Fred? I, I, I think it was you 60s, know, I, wasn't it? No, I think it was later than the 60s. Miss Google it's over here can look it up, I, though. She's a, oh, look at her. She's already doing it. She's a Googler. Yeah. Is Elon Musk own that? <laughs> uh, Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> While you're looking up that, uh, our stenographer here, uh, Simon Peter Nelson's story. That one registers with me probably as bad as well, when I get to some of the other names. But Simon Peter Nelson's story was probably, and I shouldn't speak for you. You speak for yourself here. The idea was in 1975. Yes. Joey... 75. 75, okay. okay. Simon Peter Nelson's story, probably one of the hardest things you ever had to cover. Indeed it was. It was a Saturday morning, and uh, I had just got home from uh, the radio station, and I heard a call go out on the scanner of a um, welfare check on Camp Avenue. Well, there's welfare checks all over the city, 
all day long, and most of them turn out to be nothing. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to check this one out. I can always turn around and go back home. And I pulled up in front of the house, and the police were already there, and there was an officer standing on the front porch. And I walked up, and I could see that the officer was teary. And I said, what's going on? And he said, Fred, there's six children inside, and they've all been shot to death, along with the family dog. And I said, mother and father, where are they? And they said, the mother wasn't here. She wound up, I believe, in Milwaukee at a hotel or motel. The father's master plan was to kill all the children, kill the wife, and take his own life. And he never got that far. There were some serious problems going on in their marriage. That's what sparked all of this. Anyways, police in Milwaukee were alerted of the fact that he may go up there and try to confront his estranged wife. And lo and behold, as Milwaukee police burst through the door in this hotel, motel, or whatever, Simon Peter Nelson had his estranged wife on the bathroom floor beating her head on the floor. Oh my, what timing. And she miraculously, you know, survived, and he was taken into custody. And of course, the rest is history. And you know, people ask me, whatever happened to her? I don't know. It's like she vanished into thin air. Wow. Yeah, I don't know whatever happened to her. She had her own personal help from all this, too. Oh, gee, and, uh, yes. And, of course, Simon Peter Nelson <laughs> is deceased now. He's deceased. And died in jail. <laughs> let's, let's move on one that I think affects more people that might be listening now that might remember this story. If I just say Ray Lee Stewart, a lot of people out there listening to this might have their own reaction how it affected them because Ray Lee Stewart – Affected you, me, everybody listening to this that was here at that time. We didn't know if we were going to be next. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You never knew if he was going to if he, the perpetrator on, on your family. I think it started at J. Fred Grocery. Yeah, a uh, grocery store out on the west side. He shot two people there, uh, shot and killed them. 
And then I believe it was the next day he shot and killed a young service station attendant on Kilburn Avenue. And the next day he shot and killed a, a young service station attendant on Auburn Street. From there, he went up into the state line area. The Beloit Mall, I think. Beloit Mall. Yeah. And shot, what, one or two people there? The point is, it was indiscriminate. It didn't seem... Oh, oh yeah. He was an equal opportunity killer. He didn't care, white, he didn't black, care. whatever. No. He was out... I can't think of a more heinous individual in my lifetime, but Ray Lee right. Stewart is, is right. right up. And I was afraid at that time, I'm raising my kids, they're young, and I was concerned about them. Just Why, of course. Everybody had the fear of where Ray Lee Stewart might strike next. It was something that I'll never understand why this wasn't made into a, a movie. No. This is a this, story, and oh. you covered it from day one until the, oh. let's take it fast forward to downtown with Officer Friendly. Well, Ray Lee Stewart was finally taken into custody out of state and brought back here to Winnebago County and confined in jail. He was on his way to a courtroom appearance one day and in the custody of a sheriff's officer on the way to the courtroom. And they got to the courtroom and outside the courtroom was a drinking fountain. And Ray Lee Stewart said, is it all right if I get a drink? And the officer said, go ahead. And Ray Lee Stewart bent down like he was gonna take a drink and he came up with his fist and his arm and he knocked that officer flat on his fanny and fled from the Winnebago County Courthouse. And as he was coming down the stairway from the second floor to the first floor, he came face to face with Sheriff's Officer Jim Kraut. And Stewart thought for sure he was gonna be shot. So he cowered into the corner of the stairway when the officer did not shoot him, he sprang up down the staircase outside the Winnebago County Courthouse into downtown Rockford. Mm -hmm. I got downtown and there was a massive search going on for him. And I was with officers, Tom Gibbons, who was known on the department as Officer Friendly. Mm -hmm. He probably had the shiniest holster on the department because <laughs> he worked in the school with kids, right. you know. And Tom Gibbons and... Uh, Gary Reffitt. And Gary Reffitt. The three of us started walking down the alley behind what was then the old Rockford Dry Goods building at State and Maine. Oh, sure. And at the end of the alley were two... 55-gallon drum barrels. And all of a sudden, Gibbons went like this, and we froze, and he pointed, and you could just barely see the top of Rayleigh Stewart's head out of one of these barrels. No. And I will never forget this. 
And I told Gibbons later, I said, the kids would really love you for this. Gibbons took out his gun, and he walked up to that barrel, and he took the barrel of his gun, and he screwed it right under Ray Lee's ear, and he said, Ray Lee, you give me any trouble, and I'll blow your head right off your neck. And Ray Lee said, you got me, man. You got me. And he was taken into custody. And finally put to death as he should have been. Yes. Do you remember the location on West State Street for the first shootings? Do you remember that location? Sort of in the Pierpont area. Yeah, yeah, right. At the time. Fred's Grocery Store. Yes. At the time, believe it or not, I was working at Waffler Standard which was just in front of the Lincolnwood Shopping Center. Oh, jeez. And that little boy went to our school. Oh. And so not only did it hit the community, but it hit Wilson Middle School and Auburn High School in such a way, and he was just the nicest kid. None of those people were doing anything to egg it on. And it wasn't even necessarily that it was a, a robbery incentive. That's he the was, point. This is a cold-blooded yes, murderer. Yeah. Exactly. For he no would, reason. No. The people, that, they're all disconnected stories, too. Yes. From the Beloit Mall to Fred's Grocery to the gas station to yes. whatever. It, yeah. it, it was insane. I don't remember the total number he killed. I want to say six, but I can't be sure on that. But I want to say six people. It put, I, it, I think you're right. I it think put, it was a half a dozen people. It, it totally. put everybody in fear because there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. And, boy, you just brought back some memories to me. Oh. Holy cow. Now I want to get to another story that impacted everybody in a, in a similar way, but not as tragedy. It, it was tragic for one person, Tammy Tracy. Uh. I remember in my neighborhood and in many neighborhoods around Rockford, the posters were up. Have you seen this girl? Tammy Lee Tracy was abducted or went voluntarily, I'm not sure of that, at a place on the west side where she was washing her car, I was told. She, Take she, it from there. She was washing and waxing her car at Cyril's yes, Memorial that's Park it. That's it. Uh, off uh, uh, North Central Avenue. And from all indications and appearances, it looks like whoever she left her car and went with could have been voluntarily. It could have been somebody she knew. That's what you told me over the years. Police did kind of have a good lead on this, but couldn't pin it down. Because there was no indication at the scene of a struggle Hmm. or anything like that. She was missing. Never came back to her car. I was in the public safety building one day. Somebody hollered at me. Hey, Fred, they just found Tammy Tracy's remains in the Sugar River Forest Preserve. I got up there, no other media there yet, a sheriff's officer who I had come to know very well had the entrance to the Forest Preserve blocked. And he says, Fred, he said, I got strict orders. (laughs) Nobody goes past this point. But he said, I got to get something out of my squad, <laughs> which meant, which meant you're on your own, fella. Yeah. While I turn my back. Yes. <laughs> and so I went in and was able to get 
right up to the scene where her remains, skeletal remains, were found. Whoa. So this must have been a number of years afterwards? Or, I mean, I don't know how fast yeah. the body decomposes or whatever. Yeah, but it was. It, it seemed like many years, but yeah. I think the, the many years part has been the unsolved part of it. Now, uh, if I'm not incorrect on this, it has been solved now. As far as we know, we know that somebody is in custody. Oh. Now, I've had, over the years, I've maintained uh, contact with Tracy's mom. Hmm. I went downtown recently during a court appearance, and it's anybody's guess on whether the guy that they have in custody, because of the time lapse, if they're going to be able to convict this guy. And I think that's his defense right now is he has, it hasn't gone to trial yet. Time is his alibi, sort of? Can wow. I, I'm going to just interject here. I, um, I did Google to find out for sure on this. And as of September 28th of 2021, it says um, a 33-year-old cold case. So it's 33-year-old mm -hmm. ago. Um, the Worth County deputies arrested Jesse Smith for the murder of Tammy Tracy. So he's being held right now. So it's an unfinished story. An I, I, unfinished. unfinished. We've mm. given a lot of attention to some of the terrible tragedies in your work with the police and the sheriff's department, et cetera. Now let's go to one of your passions is the fire department. You have been a loyalist and a, the people love you in the fire department the same as the police department. Let's talk about some of the fire stories. I'm going to start with one that I obviously, whenever I hear Fred Spear at, on the scene in those days, I would go down to this, unless it was a serious one where I could possibly get injured because I'm a devout coward. But <laughs> when it comes to the fires, I did go down at the area of the second congregational fire and, at different time, the Court Street Methodist That's fire. True. Tell us this story about, are they both arsons, by the way? Second con, I believe, was uh, a roofing crew doing some work, and for whatever reason... It caught on fire. Court Street Methodist Church, ironically, I was at Fire Station 1 at, uh, at the noon hour having uh, lunch with the fire crew. That's at, uh, on Winnebago Street. It wasn't spaghetti, no. was it? <laughs> <laughs> Only once, Liz. Only once. And we had no sooner started dinner and the alarm went off. Automatic alarm, Court Street Methodist Church. Well, usually automatic alarms go off and there's no fire. They just malfunction, you know, and we thought, ah, oh, it's going to be a 1019, which means return to quarters. So I followed the first rigs, which at that time from uh, Woodlawn and Winnebago was a, a ladder company and a pumper. And followed them right into the church, pulled up, Nothing showing. Firefighters grabbed a couple of hand pumps, went into the church, and all of a sudden they came out and they were gasping for air, and they said, the whole sanctuary's on fire. And just then, pow, it burst right through the roof of the church. So they got out just in time. Wow. The guy that said it 
was across the street in an abandoned building watching everything go down. Oh, that is not untypical of arsonists. That's right, exactly. And, of course, the the devastation at Court Street Church was Mm. unbelievable. Wow. I became a fast friend over the years of the Reverend Harold McIlvaney. Yes. Who who thinks nothing but, he's now deceased, but he thought nothing but great things about you and your coverage of that story. And... uh, that's the church you, as a youngster I was baptized in. Oh, fun. Well, we that, was, were, we that were, was... We were married there by Harold. Wow. Oh. In 1990. I think the late Dave Salisbury was very active in that church at one time. He well, was, yeah. yes. Very, very much yes. so. Yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, Midway Theater was one. That's right. I forgot Midway Theater. Midway and you theater? weren't still doing broadcasting when ChemTool went down. That one's still oh. a big story. Midway Theater, I will never yep. forget. That one was really rolling when the fire department pulled in. And I'll never forget, I had Rockford Fire Department issued gear. And how I got that, mm-hmm. one day there was a, an alarm at uh, one of the industrial firms on Kishwaukee Street. Mm-hmm. I pulled in behind the fire department. There wasn't anything showing. And I was used to just going in with them, you know? And so I walked through the front door, and some guy who turned out to be the personnel manager said, who are you? And I told him, seat of the pants, back of the shoulder, and out the front door. (laughs) And I thought, whoops. So after the fire, I got downtown, back at uh, Squad One's quarters, and the guy said, no, this can't happen anymore. We're going to get you some gear. And so I got a helmet, coat, boots, a whole ball of wax. And they said, from now on, when you're at a, especially a serious fire, put the gear on and blend in. That's how I got I love that. Fred Spear, the uh, newsman, the firefighter. Absolutely. Superman. Yeah. But, uh. I can, I can remember more times than not when I was doing weekends on WROK, especially when I was at NIU, and there were several times that you would walk into the radio station and still have some of that gear on, maybe not the helmet. You had this energy that it was jump out of the news car. It was probably misparked in the, in the front lot. <laughs> And you barge in, and you go in, and you cut the story, and you get it on the air outside of what you yeah. did live. Yeah. And then you worry about yourself later. Would you not agree I with that, agree Doug? I would agree with that 100%. I also think that Fred had a tolerance level for radio people like myself and others over the years. <laughs> yes. no, uh, well, you, you know, going back to the Midway <laughs> Theater, on that day when it was burning, I had my gear on. And I went in the front entrance of the Midway Theater and it was really rolling, uh, uh, flames, smoke, and we were crawling on our hands and knees to get further into the theater. And all of a sudden, one of the firefighters said, let's get the F out of here. (laughs) They could see it getting bad. Yeah, and he said, don't put that F on the air. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Fred, if you choose to, this is a podcast, and you can use the word. <laughs> so, I advise against it, but you can. So, so I said, 
You got my assurance. It won't be on the air. Wow. If you had your druthers, uh, whether they are still with us or not, whether they are a news person or an on-air staff, whether it be AM or FM, who would you like to be on the air with again? If you could do it tomorrow, who did you just really enjoy being on the air with? Oh. Well, of course, with Doug. You um, had to say that, hey. didn't you? <laughs> but other no, than no, McDuff, really. let's go. Mc, McDuff, we spent so many years together, you know. Oh, sure. And, uh, oh, who was the guy that worked over an FM in the mornings? Uh, well, it could have been Randy Cook or Jeff Wicker. Or Jeff Wicker. Okay. Jeff Wicker. Okay. Isn't he a great guy? Je- yeah. And what I did, enjoyed. Who doesn't work- love Jeff Wicker? I know. I enjoyed. <laughs> I know. Working with Wicker. Yeah. Okay. And I was doing his newscast in the morning. Yeah. Over there. So I'm over there one morning. And, and of course, Jeff had such a great personality, sense of humor, you know. Halfway through the newscast, I get the freaking hiccups. (laughs) (laughs) And and Jeff just kind of looked up and kind kind of giggled a little bit. And I assured him, I said, under control. It's terrible. I started reading it again, and it was nothing but... <laughs> Wicker was laughing so hard, he was on the floor. Oh, yeah. I could see that. He was on the floor. Oh I could see and, it. Do you remember, now that you mentioned that, I, I, one of the worst things can happen when you're a radio announcer would be hiccups and diarrhea. Oh, my, yes. We worked with the newsman who had a tendency to have intestinal problems. <laughs> no. And his name was Bill Winchell. Yes. You worked with Bill. Take it from there. Oh, my gosh. What a character. We, well, we could do a whole show on characters but, in this business, but uh, he stood out to me as one of the funniest and, and yet tragic guys that I ever worked with. He was a, a tortured soul in a way. He was, but yes. But he did have this intestinal <clears throat> problem. Now, let's tell something that we probably have never talked about on the air or anywhere, except you and I off the air have talked about different things we used to do, like coming in and burning your f- copy before you read it, and, and, and me walking down making faces at you. You were relatively easy to break up. Yes. One of the hardest yes. that I ever, easiest was Bob Schumann. Oh, my You yes. were second. The hardest was probably Ken DeCoster. Oh, I agree. Oh, gee, Ken yes. DeCoster is a serious guy. I yes, agree. and he definitely would be hard. I, it was a challenge to break up Ken DeCoster, right. and you felt if you did break him up, he'd probably kill you after the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> or that's your, true. Or your headphones would yeah, be filled with yeah, something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, when I think about, uh, there was a time, and I, uh, because this is a <clears throat> podcast, and you have a little more latitude. One time, a person or persons unknown, Saran wrap. Over the bathroom toilet seat for, for when, oh, no. when, when he had one of his episodes. And our friend, and you may not remember this one. I oh. covered it. No. <laughs> <laughs> on the scene, spread for uh, it, it, it was, and he went and sat on that, and let's just say it was a disaster. Oh, no. And I, I've never told that story on or off the air, uh. I don't think, but uh, that was early 80s. Right. I, whatever right. it was. When he came out, who did this? He went up. Nobody ever. Everybody's laughing, but nobody will admit who did it. And to this day, I'm not going to say who did it. Oh, but you know. Oh, yeah. Oh. 
I, w- I was in effect in on it, but didn't do the. I didn't perpetrate the. Do you act. see? Do you see how Doug sometimes goes into the news department yeah. when he wants to, when it's convenient for him, and he says, "I can't reveal my can't source." Reveal Yes. He learned well, that from Fred. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. And then all of a sudden he's out of the news department when, you know, when that's done. But we did the, the breaking up of, of a newsman was, was a, a rite of passage in the radio business years ago. Yes. I don't well, think it it's done in, in 2022 like it was back when I was a youngin' in the business. I don't know. I think today you'd be fired for a lot of things we did in those days, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, really. Now, you also had the good sense to never do it when Fred was on a serious, hard-hitting story. Yes. Of course. You pick your timing. Yeah. Now, see, I would jump at the chance to break up Rick McLaughlin, but I would never go anywhere near the microphone that Bob Pressman was on. Right. Right. You got that right. That's a good example. I think that is a good example. And and I encourage you guys, once we launch all these episodes, to listen to our conversation with Ken DeCoster because the story is epic with how Charlie Quinn broke him up on the air. And that's all I'll say. It was so good. Charlie Quinn, by the way, is the guy who hired me in my second tour of duty at WROK back in 1980. He was listening to when I was doing over at Triple R at that time. And he said, "Uh, Mr. Nolte, I have this guy in town. We don't have to keep looking. This guy is great. And (laughs) typical Vern Nolte is what I was told later. I know him. He used to work here. Yeah, bring him over. Yeah, go get him. <laughs> go get him. Yeah. <laughs> so I interviewed. To, I'm like, I'm starting over from my 1965 interview to 1980 with Charlie, Dave Salisbury, Ron Galena, yeah. the whole group. Yeah. And I got interviewed, but Charlie thinks he discovered me. <laughs> Which is funny because I was across town and standing on the room. That's funny. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes. But enough about you, Fred. More about me. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, of course. Sometimes stories go full circle. Yeah. It was a bitter cold winter night. Call went out. Gunfire in the shelter house at Levings Lake. I pulled in behind the first sheriff's squad. Deputy said, ah, Fred, let's see what's going on in here. And we walked in there, and on that cold winter floor were the lifeless bodies of 14-year-old cousins, Johnson and Mullendore, who had been shot and killed. The families went up to Rockford Memorial ER, And that's where I had contact with them and asked them to do an interview with me. And I said, if you don't want to talk to me, I understand I'm out of here. Both those families opened up their hearts and souls and talked to me. And out of it came a lifelong friendship with the Johnson family until Within the past year, Dana Johnson, the wife, passed away. I was leaving, getting ready to leave the radio station at noon one day, and a call went out uh, for an incident, an emergency unknown near the radio station. I thought, oh, I'll check it out. 
and I'm going down the street, and there's a young man in the front yard, turned out to be 16 years old, and there was no other people there yet, emergency people. I says, what's going on? And he said, I just pulled two youngsters out of the backyard swimming pool, children. He'd been babysitting, moms were at the grocery store. He became preoccupied with the TV. All of a sudden realized, oh, the kids ran into the backyard. He had them inside at that time on the dining room floor. And I was, at that time, I was also an instructor for the Red Cross here. I said, do you know anything about CPR? He said, no. I said, listen, man, until help gets here, I'm going to take one, watch what I'm doing, and you take the other one. Yeah, okay. Well, just then, Winnebago County Sheriff's Officer John Williams, a black man, came through the front door. Uh, John and I, over the years, had become very good friends. Mm -hmm. And the two of us are working on these youngsters when the moms burst through the front door. And the first words out of this one mom's mouth was, oh my God, he's black. Come on. And I stopped and I said, yes, he's black. And I said, oh my God, I said, he's trying to save your son's life. I cried all the way home that afternoon. Both those tots died. And like I say, stories that go full circle. The young man that they arrested for the Johnson Mullendore shootings at Levins Lake was the son of Officer John Williams. and he was convicted and went to prison and while in prison hung himself. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, you can tell by this interview with Fred Spear, the radio icon of all of us, uh, how seriously he took his career, 40 plus years. And I'd like to end it, first of all, with a public thank you for all of us for what you've done, how, oh. you, how seriously you took the business, how genuine you are as a person, a human being. I do know, if I'm incorrect, you'll tell me. <laughs> I think the serious work of covering incidents, fires, tragedies, murders, the thing I think you least liked doing over the years was things political. I think you were unhappy when you had to cover city council. I think you slept through half of them. Amen. As, as I remember. And so, but that was part of the job. It you, was. You did what you, like all of us, you're a good soldier. You did what you're told to do. That's right. But was I on the right track then? You, you, the, doing the political thing was not your thing. Well, I always felt like I was missing a story. Exactly. But on a serious note, of all the, I'm putting you on the spot here. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Who was your most favorite mayor of Rockford to deal with? Ben Schleicher. I would have bet money on that answer. <laughs> and, I'll, let me tell, and let me tell you why. Well, for one thing, uh, I went to West High with his son, yeah. Ben Jr. And he was a twin, by the way, too, Ben. He was, yeah. And, uh, was, uh, it, was it Frank that was his brother? 
I don't remember, but I do know there were different events where Ben showed up even though it wasn't Ben. <laughs> that I can tell you. Boy, that mayor, he shows up everywhere. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's got a dupe. They but, had a lot of fun with that in the Schleicher. But family. I used to have some good conversations with uh, Mayor Schleicher in his office. And I came in one day. He always called me Fritz. <laughs> and he says, Fritz, I got a proposal. And I said, that scares the hell out of me. <laughs> And he said, how would you like to become my administrative assistant? Whoa. He says, no decision now. Give it some thought and get back to me. And I thought, oh, man. I said, mayor, I said, what happens when you're no longer mayor? And he said, Fred, this job will open a lot of doors for you. So I thought about it for some time. And then I walked into Ben's office one day and I said, I got to keep doing what I'm doing. I feel that what I'm doing is my calling. And, uh, but I, I appreciate the offer. Who do you pick then to become his administrative assistant? I don't know if it was Doug Scott or who it was. But anyways, he picked somebody else. And then when you talk about stories going full circle, John Strandon became Doug Scott's That's right. PR guy That's years right. later. That's right. And what jo- happened to John Strandon? Well, <laughs> you mean after he came in and talked to us? I can't be real sure. But, you know, he is still involved because he had to be at Rock Valley College that night. He's still very involved, John is, in the uh, Starlight Theater. Oh, he's very involved in theater. Of course, his yeah. lovely daughter is uh, very active in the theater. And yes. the family is, you know... So, yeah, the whole family are very active in theater, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I get my news now, not from radio, but from Facebook. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Fred, I, I have a question for you, Fred. Yes. With all of this contact that you've had with the, with the fire department, mm-hmm. with the police department, have you ever been in trouble with them? Have you ever had any running? They couldn't prove it, okay? Oh. I have, <laughs> I have not, but I'll tell you what. There was a bad factory fire over in Freeport on a Saturday night. Okay. And I'm really highballing it down 20 on my way to Freeport. And all of a sudden, jeez, oh, cops. And I looked at my side view mirror and I thought, I'm oh, the state police. But you knew them all, right? Not oh, necessarily not state, state police. No, oh. not the state police. Yeah. Oh. But I looked through my side view mirror and the trooper got out of his car. And he walked up and he said, oh, my God, Fred, it's you. He said, where in the hell are you going, to a fire? <laughs> I said, yeah, over in Freeport. Oh. He said, shave off 10 miles and give me a couple of minutes to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so did he recognize well, he, he you did. by face or did he recognize no, the logos on the car? No, by face. Get out of here. It was a trooper I knew. Wow. See, it does help. And on that happy note, I'm going to close off this podcast for this day on the WROK Storyteller Studio office. And I want to thank you, Fred, for all the years. My pleasure. pleasure. And I I can't tell you how many tickets I got out of by saying I know Fred (laughs) Spears. And that wraps it up, ladies and gentlemen. Doug McDuff, thank you very much. Thank you, Fred Spears. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Storyteller's Studio in celebration of WROK Radio's 100th year in broadcasting.